Welcome to our newest Hearts Unite the Globe hug patrons. Annie Olchek, we sincerely appreciate your support. Thank you for joining our community and making a difference through Patreon. Judy Miller, thank you for being our first Buzzsprout supporter for Bereave But Still Me. Buzzsprout started a new program where you can actually support the podcast of your choice. There are so many ways you can support Hug. All you have to do is visit our website, heartsunitetheglobe.com, to see how you too can help empower, educate, and enrich the lives of individuals in the CHD and bereaved communities. Thank you all for your continued support. They said, the future creates anxiety. The past creates guilt and shame. So you stay in the present, but it's a lot healthier. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna. I am Anna Jaworski and the host of your program. I am also the mother of an adult with a Fontaine heart. Today's episode is called Heart Moms on PTSD and CTSD. Jeannie Yancey is the mother of three adult children. Lauren is 23, Brianna is 21, and Isaac is 19. Isaac is a heart warrior who was born with a single ventricle heart. In addition to his congenital heart defect, he has other medical issues. Jeannie is a U.S. Navy veteran, recent college graduate. She graduated in December 2020, and she works full-time in PR for the federal government. Jeannie was officially diagnosed with PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder in 2018 after several panic attacks and mental breakdowns. After several months of therapy, Jeannie's therapist suggested she attend a mindfulness group. Fearful of the group at first, it took a lot of encouragement and motivation for her to go, but she has learned that mindfulness is really helpful. Today, Jeannie and I will be discussing Jeannie's history as a heart mom, what PTSD and CTSD are, and what mindfulness is and how mindfulness might help other heart parents. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna, Jeannie. Thanks for having me. Jeannie, let's talk about how you discovered your son had a heart defect. I went to my 20-week ultrasound and I was told there was something wrong with my son's femurs and I had to schedule an appointment with the high-risk pregnancy clinic. I went to the high-risk clinic later and I was given another ultrasound. And then I was told my son had a severe heart defect and a large pool of blood on his brain. Oh my gosh. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. So you started out with a problem with the femur or the leg bone. Then the next thing you know, you're being told that your child has a major heart defect and blood on the brain. Yeah. So I went in thinking it was something totally different. They kind of hid it from me and I didn't know exactly what I was going. I was like, you know, what's the heck with the femurs? Who cares if his legs are short? I was like, I don't care. But I didn't understand what the whole thing was until I went to the high-risk clinic. And then that's when the bombshell. Oh my gosh. So they didn't want to tell you how serious it was. So that's why they only said it was the femurs. Right. They didn't know maybe how to, you know, maybe (sighs) present that to somebody. Maybe, I don't know. They just didn't know what to do. (laughs) Right. Okay. Well, I understand immediately why you might have had PTSD. How scary is that? Yeah, to go big in surprises thinking, all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So, and blood on the brain. So, were they concerned the baby had 
some accident? Like, had you been hit in your stomach when you were pregnant or what might cause the blood on the brain? I figured out later was the pressures from the heart can cause brain bleeds. And so they still can't tell me why, but doing my own research, I found that the pressures in the heart can affect the brain. So it was kind of hard to get answers because not one person knows the heart and the brain. And so there was no middle person that knows both answers and so they would say oh all i know is about the heart you can't ask me about the brain and i go to the person that knows the brain and say sorry i can only tell you about the brain so i had to do my own research to put those puzzles (sighs) together and figure it out so when i talked to them about those blood pressures you know they're on the heart that easily could have made a brain bleed because you know that so this is the first i've heard of that i've done over 370 shows this is the first I've heard that during pregnancy, you might notice that there were brain bleeds because of the congenital heart defect. So you are teaching right. me something new. That is really scary. They said his brain's bleeding. He's got a severe heart defect. They couldn't figure out what it was. They just knew something was wrong. And it took a lot of testing. And they still didn't know before he was born exactly what was wrong. And we just had to wait till he was born and could hold still for the doctors to get a good picture of what was going on. To be fair, this was 19 years ago. So right. technology has changed a lot between then and now. But still, that just must have been terrifying for you. Now, you already had two children. So yes. you knew what a normal pregnancy was like. And you knew that this is not what should have been happening for you. Did you have very different circumstances with this pregnancy versus the other two pregnancies you had? Not until I got to that 20-week ultrasound. Everything was just going smoothly. It was even actually better than before. Didn't have hardly any morning sickness. I was like, wow, this is wonderful. Mm. So Okay. So you find out at 20 weeks, that means you are at the midpoint of your pregnancy. Right. Did they talk to you about options at that point? Yeah. And that's what was really shocking too, is I went to a hospital that was Christian hospital that I would have expected wouldn't give abortion as the first option. I was not prepared to hear that. So the first thing they said to me is you can have an abortion, but you're going to have to go out of state because you can't do it here. I was just like, stop already. It's like, that's not even an option for me. So just shut up already because I can't (laughs) handle that. (laughs) I was just not ready to hear that. No, even consider it. So I was like, give me some other options. I'm done with that option. Move on. Let's hear something else. And so after that, they just kind of looked at me like I was crazy for thinking of even moving forward with this. I was like, hey, I'm going to do everything I can. My feeling being a Christian like you is God has a plan for this and babies are miracles. And who knows what will happen between now when this is being diagnosed and by the time the baby is born, who knows what might happen? Things right. might so that's heal. what I thought. I right. thought, well, you know, let's like make that decision. If he thinks that this child shouldn't live, then he does that. I don't want to be playing God and doing that. So, right. you know, no, no judgment against somebody else who decides their thing, but. Right. But know, for you, that was for me, not this was just not an option. And so I was quite shocked to hear that as my first option and not say, mm-hmm. oh, we'll do everything that you know. Yeah, that in and of itself, Jeannie, can be traumatizing. So it was very traumatizing that day. 
it was like one of the worst days I can ever remember. So yeah. it's hard to remember this because it was a traumatizing day. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so you said that's off the table. We're not going to consider abortion. What are my other options? What did they tell you then? Can't even tell you what I remember after that, but it wasn't anything hopeful. They just kind of looked at me with no hope. And I was just devastated because I felt like I wasn't getting any support or any hope from the doctors. After that, for the next few months, it was really hard, but I was like, I'm just going to hold on to the hope that I have and just keep going. I'm just going to keep moving forward until God makes that decision for me because I was just not going to change. I was just going to keep trying. So did you switch doctors? I did. They wanted me to go to another doctor anyway, and I was thankful. <laughs> yeah, I think so, at this point I would be too. I don't know why they switched. I can't remember because also with PTSD, you forget a lot of things. And so there's a lot of things I can't remember, details I can't remember. So whatever options they gave, I can't remember. But I remember that there was really no hope at that point, the way they were treating me, because I even wrote a letter to the hospital after the fact and told them how I did like how they handled it and explained later when I could get my thoughts together. Sure. And then just I explained to them that they needed to know that for me, it was unacceptable. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you did that because perhaps they stopped and thought about what they were saying before they offered the next mother who right. had a similar situation, right. the same option as the first option. Okay. You said this is an option. They said, we're not going to be able to help you. You need to go to a different doctor. And you found a different doctor. Was it at a different hospital as well? Yes, it was at a different hospital. And did that doctor offer you some hope? Not really. We just, <laughs> oh my gosh, Jeannie. You know, I just want to hug you right now. <laughs> when I went to that doctor, he didn't do anything you could say to talk about the baby or the baby's health. He would talk more about me and just talk about, oh, you're doing well as far as, you know, my health or something. So he was only talking okay. about my health, not the health of the baby. So were so, you going to give birth at a hospital that was prepared to handle a complicated baby? Yes. Like your baby? Yeah. When we went to the University of Utah, it's connected by a hallway to the children's hospital. And oh, so okay. when your baby's born, they will take it to the ICU first at their hospital, get it stable and hooked up and everything, and then have it life lighted through, not a helicopter, but they call it life light. And they go through that hallway in the corridor. Life light has the oxygen and everything. So your baby's safe to go across that bridge to the children's hospital. And then they go straight to the NICU that day they're born. Okay. Wow. Okay. What was the birth like for you? I mean, did they say that you could have a vaginal birth or were they concerned about that too? I could have a normal birth, you could say, but everything happened so fast that I had a natural birth. Wasn't prepared for that, even though at least I'd been to some birthing class a few years before. So I knew how to kind of breathe, but still I did have a panic attack and everything while giving birth. So, Oh my gosh, Jamie. <laughs> although it was really bad at first, within a few minutes, I was okay. And I was surprised that I was okay after that. Okay. So Isaac was delivered. Thank heavens it was a fast birth because considering you didn't have any help medically as far as drugs to numb you. Right. 
Oh right. my gosh, I can't even imagine. Because he was born so, from the about thirty minutes since I got to the hospital. He was born in oh like about thirty my minutes. So. Gosh, no, there wasn't even time to get an epidural in you. Okay, so that yeah, talk about no, a quick yeah. birth. Okay, so then they lifelight him over to the children's hospital. Were you able to be discharged right away so you could go with him? No, I stayed for another day or so, so I would go visit him through that hallway. I get pushed in a wheelchair across the way and go visit him, but then he had to have his heart surgery within a couple of days. Did they confirm the original diagnosis right after he was born? The original diagnosis, they didn't really have one. They just said he had half a heart. That's all they could tell me. So I didn't know any more than that. So then they were able to figure out he has hypoplastic right heart, which was a very big comfort instead of hypoplastic left Mm -hmm. because he he would need the Norwood. The BT shunt was the first surgery. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that was a lot less stressful thinking of that than the Norwood. So it sounds like you were fairly prepared. Now, did he still have blood on his brain? Was that a concern as well? It was, but they weren't really too concerned about it because they were just concerned about the heart first. And Mm -hmm. it seemed like they weren't concerned about that at all. Well, they kept asking, well, what about his brain? Because he was supposed to have brain surgery too, because we'd also got to the neurologist and because we'd known he had something wrong with his brain. So they were prepared to do brain surgery. I was concerned, like, if he needs brain surgery, why are you not telling me when this brain surgery is going to happen? So we just kind of sat and waited until they finally told us, oh, he's going to be fine because they did an ultrasound of his head. They said it's draining good enough that we'll just keep on watching it. And it was draining fast enough to function that they wouldn't have to put a shunt in. Wow, so we were well, relieved. that was a blessing. Yeah. Uh, it's just that lack of information makes you anxious again. Sure. That lack of uncertainty. So that's going to create anxiety because you really want to know what's going on. Right. Now, did he have problems with his femurs as well? He did, but it was very minor. They were just off by just millimeters. It was nothing yeah. big at all. It wasn't yeah. a big deal. If they were short femur, they says there would have been a problem because your femurs support your body weight. So if he'd had short femurs, he would have not been able to walk very well or at all. So it sounds like you had a lot of different stress-inducing experiences from the early diagnosis and prognosis and being offered an option that didn't fit with your lifestyle to just so much uncertainty. But the heart, the brain, the legs, what do you think was most responsible for causing you distress during that time? Number one, I think it's the uncertainty because you're just always on edge, just wondering, okay, what's next? Home Tonight Forever by the Baby Blue Sound Collective. I think what I love so much about this CD is that some of the songs were inspired by the patients. Many listeners will understand many of the different songs and what they've been inspired by. Our new album will be available on iTunes, Amazon.com, Spotify. I love the fact that the proceeds from this CD are actually going to help those with congenital heart defects. Enjoy the music. Home Tonight Forever. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The opinions expressed in the podcast are not those of Hearts Unite the Globe, but of the hosts and guests, and are intended to spark discussion about issues pertaining to congenital heart disease or bereavement. 
You are listening to Heart to Heart with Anna. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our show, please send an email to Anna Jaworski at Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. That's Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. Now, back to Heart to Heart with Anna. Jeannie, you mentioned that you were officially diagnosed with PTSD in 2018 after having several panic attacks and breakdowns. So what were some signs and symptoms prior to your diagnosis? I was very alarmed with new information or I was just very sensitive. I guess you could say just on edge all the time, always on guard, kind of just ready for the worst to happen at any time. Nightmares, insomnia. I couldn't concentrate very well. And often I was ruminating. If you know what that means, it's just like just constantly you think about something and you just dwell on it for a really long time, thinking about all the possibilities and kind of catastrophic things, you know. Yeah, I do know. I think most of us mothers of children with complex congenital heart defects do that. I mean, I don't know if I've ever talked about this on my program before, but on more than one occasion when I was ruminating, I wondered what I would do if my son passed away and how I would eulogize him. And I never did that with my heart-healthy son. Yeah, you couldn't get to that step. Yeah. And I wonder if you did this too with Isaac. There were times that Alexander wanted to do things that scared me. Like when he was trying out for his black belt, he had to run a mile. And the morning that we woke up for his black belt test, I turned on the radio and they said, oh, we're under a heat advisory. If you have heart or lung problems, you shouldn't go outside today. And I knew that my child was going to be running around the track at the high school for his black belt test. I really wanted to cancel it, Jeannie. But I knew that he wanted to do that and I wasn't allowed to stay. They didn't allow parents to stay for the black belt test. I guess it would be too distracting for the kids. And I dropped him off and started praying and wondered what I would say if he passed. Right. Did you ever have thoughts like that? Sometimes with other medical tests, like the stress test running on the treadmill, you're just really worried. That treadmill, I've been on a stress test myself, and I know how horrible it is running on that stress test. And then having the IV, and then if you fall, you rip that IV. And it's just all the things that you think about, like, well, what if this happens? Or what if that happens? You just have to start trying to maybe not do that so that you can get through the day. Yes, you do. For me, I felt that if Alexander died doing something like that, that he lived the life he wanted to, and that we have no guarantees with any of our kids how long they are going to live. Right. We gave him this really amazing opportunity to survive by having these open heart surgeries. To me, all of them are miracles if they can survive that. So I wanted him to live the life he wanted to live, not try and wrap him in bubble wrap or put him in a bubble and not let him live the life that he wanted. So that was my comfort, I guess, but it didn't feel very comfortable sometimes. So 
I have never been diagnosed with PTSD, but I know I have it <laughs> because there are certain things that will trigger it for me. Tell me, after you got your diagnosis, what kind of help you were offered? Well, I wasn't really surprised because like you, I knew I had PTSD, but then it's still hard to admit that I needed therapy. I thought I didn't need therapy or go see a therapist because you see things on TV and we get these little ideas in our head of what therapy is, what it's perceived to be by the media. So knowing that you needed therapy just did sound right, but I gave it a try. And so having the courage to try different therapies and go to therapy, it was difficult at first, but you start trying new therapies and trying to see what would help. Mm -hmm. I had to go to therapy. There was no question for me. I sank into a depression that was very uncommon for me. I tend to be such an optimist and I've even been called a Pollyanna before. So I knew when I got sick and couldn't get better and like you having the nightmares and all of that, I knew I needed help. I'm curious, is there a particular event that encouraged you to be seen by a doctor to get that diagnosis? I was going to college and so it was really difficult to get through my classes and take tests because I had test anxiety and mm -hmm. just with all the stress going on, school was really difficult going to college. It was just a really big deal for me. And so I was also trying to get maybe accommodations to see if I could get some help at school, but I had to go see this psychiatrist that the VA had at our college. He was so surprised to hear all the things I had told him. He was just beside himself. He was just like, I can't believe you're telling me this. He was like, you really need to get into therapy. And I was still resisting. But you know, that was the big point was just that I needed help because I couldn't get through my classes without the help. Yeah. So finally, after he was able to get me some help and get me some accommodations, everything started working better. I wasn't going to pass without those accommodations like extra testing time, things like that, so that I could calm down or have a special room away from everybody that I could just focus. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I'm glad that you had a good reason to get that diagnosis and that you started to get some help. Now, you introduced me to an acronym I did not know before we started this, and that's CTSD, which is Continuous Traumatic Stress Disorder. Can you tell me more about that? I never knew about the official one until we actually did kind of more of a thing that I felt like was just created among support group people because it was something we always put up with. It's not like you had one traumatic event right. that caused this. It's the, it's always happening, you yeah. know? You first have the diagnosis of the heart, and then you've got a surgery, and then you've got another surgery, and then you've got some complications. Mm -hmm. It's just like a whole domino effect, you know, that it really, it one, really thing, one is. thing causes another. And yeah. So it's well, just and constant. For me, I was always waiting for that other shoe to drop. Always. Yeah. Because the diagnosis seemed to come out of nowhere for me. I'd already had a healthy child. I didn't expect to hear this. So after that, I felt like, well, what else is going to happen? On top of that, now we have a COVID world. I feel sorry for the mothers of young children now because that's got to complicate things so much more. 
but it prepared me for the pandemic. So I feel like it was a good thing. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I tried not to laugh at other people because I felt like their problems were so small. But if I was in their shoes, I'd you know, be feeling like them. So, you know, you try not to laugh at other people that are having small little problems. But COVID seemed like it was something that I knew I already had to handle. Like, you already know about washing your hands and Oh, yeah. You know, you're saying everyone's going to finally start washing their hands. You're like, yeah. I know, right? I started to feel like, okay, now everybody else gets it. Now they don't look at me like I'm so crazy. Of course, now my kids all grown up, so it's not such a big deal. But my family and even some friends, they felt that I was being anal because I wouldn't let them touch the baby without washing their hands first. And I wouldn't let them come in the house if they were sick. And now the world gets it why yeah. we had to behave the way that we did. But so it felt like I could be validated or something. Yes. Anna Jaworski has written several books to empower the congenital heart defect or CHD community. These books can be found at Amazon.com or at her website, www.babyheartspress.com. Her bestseller is The Heart of a Mother, an anthology of stories written by women for women in the CHD community. Anna's other books, My Brother Needs an Operation, The Heart of a Father, and Hypoplastic Left Heart Syndrome, a handbook for parents, will help you understand that you are not alone. Visit babyheartspress.com to find out more. Heart to Heart with Anna is a presentation of Hearts Unite the Globe and is part of the Hug Podcast Network. Hearts Unite the Globe is a nonprofit organization devoted to providing resources to the congenital heart defect community to uplift, empower, and enrich the lives of our community members. If you would like access to free resources pertaining to the CHD community, please visit our website at www.congenitalheartdefects.com for information about CHD, the hospitals that treat children with CHD, summer camps for CHD survivors, and much, much more. Jeannie, you mentioned that you had a therapist, but you haven't really told us about the kinds of therapy you did. Now, in the bio, I know that you did some mindfulness work. So first of all, can you tell my listeners what mindfulness is and some of the therapies that you did? Yes, it's focusing my awareness on the present moment while you're calmly acknowledging my feelings, thoughts, bodily sensations. It's non-judgmental, so you don't label those sensations as something negative. Even if you're feeling pain, you just say there's pain there. You don't try to say, oh, this is horrible or anything like that. You don't give it a label. You just non-judgmentally say, okay, I can feel there's a sensation there. I'm feeling happy. We're just going to just see things how they are. You can just kind of be more focused, just aware of what you're feeling. So it's a way of acknowledging my stomach is in knots right now, but you're not going to say that's bad. You're just acknowledging my stomach is in knots. Maybe I need to take some deep breaths. <laughs> so my stomach's not in knots anymore. And is it takes you practice. Do? It takes okay. practice because at first you want to judge it and you keep wanting to say, oh, but I hate this. I don't like the pain that I'm feeling or I don't like this thing. You just have to let it go by letting it go it takes some of that pain away after you can get through it you can actually get rid of pain because we found out that most of the pain we are suffering is secondary pain it's not real pain 
it's kind of hard to accept that sometimes you're like, oh, but I had this injury. And you're like, no, it's how your brain just works with your body. So we found out about secondary pain in these sessions that we could get rid of a lot of that pain. And so that was wonderful once you could get past that and you can say, okay, you you just explore it. You say, okay, it's tingly or something and try to explore it a little bit more. It's a burning, try to evaluate it and try to understand it. By doing that, it helps your brain make those connections. So it was just really interesting how scientifically that that would work and just kind of reframe everything. It's almost like you're being taught how to be more objective about your body instead of subjective about your body. Yeah, it helps you get to know your body better than you ever knew it before. So we had all kinds of different types of therapy that could let you explore, for instance, eating. You know, you'd have your eyes open eating a raisin and you would explore it you think of all the sensations that you feel as you're letting it roll across your tongue and exploring it and realizing that there's not even any taste until you bite down into that raisin you don't really taste hardly anything so it's just interesting once you start exploring it just rewires your brain you can just be more aware of what's going on Now, did you do this individually or did you do this in a group? We did it as a group. And so the whole group would get past, say, the raisin. The raisin's the most common one that people do for eating. And you try the raisin because it's just really interesting. Take that raisin and you just explore it and you have to go really slowly. You're not allowed to bite on it until they tell you you could bite on it. And it just teaches you a lot. It's just a good exercise to try. To, to just get to know. Okay, so you're all sitting in this group. All of you have suffered some kind of trauma. Do you all talk about your trauma or is it only that you're focused on your body here and now? The only thing we ever talk about is how we're focusing after we'll say like, oh no, that felt good or whatever. We never ever talk about things about our traumas or what brought us there it's actually against HIPAA it's against just the rules because Mm -hmm. everybody's thought through different things but if some people hear your story that could trigger them and cause problems for them that could set them back so Mm -hmm. you cannot ever talk about anything that brought you there at all you can make friends but you shouldn't talk about what brought you there to those people you know Wow. No, I didn't know. Because when I went to therapy, I sat in a group and that was the first thing we did was we all went around a room and talked about what brought us there. And I never really thought about, oh, that might have triggered people because we were all crying. They passed out tissues too. (laughs) They knew that it was going to be hard for everybody. So yeah, that's a totally different type of therapy. That it actually yeah. makes a lot of sense that you wouldn't. We talk still cry for each other sometimes. Sure. Because like sure. sometimes there was a guy he would say, I'm an ex cop and he had all this guilt that he's carrying. He doesn't say oh. what this guilt was for, but he's right. carrying all this guilt for different things that he did and he's over there crying and talking about how he cannot forgive himself. So you're just like, oh my gosh, this just is breaking my heart. You know, that that or a soldier that was in Vietnam just saying, I cannot forgive myself for what I did in Vietnam, but he doesn't say what he did in Vietnam. He did say, I cannot forgive myself. So people would tell that much sometimes, but they would never go into detail and Mm -hmm. you could still 
feel that empathy for those other people. Right, right. So through the process of mindfulness, did those gentlemen, did you feel that you were able to start to let go of the past and focus on your present? Yes, because they would start before the session and explain if you focus on your past, there's nothing you can do about your past. Mm-hmm. Focus on the past, you're only going to judge and have guilt feelings for things that you did do or things you did do. And so they says focusing on the past, it's not healthy. So they says you can't even focus on the future because you just need to focus on the moment that you're in right now. When you're in therapy, you just think of the present moment so that you can clear your mind and just think of what's going on in your body right now. And it's a lot easier to cope if you just think of what's happening now and not have anxiety about the future. Because they said the future creates anxiety, the past creates guilt and shame. So you stay in the present, it's a lot healthier. Right. So what advice would you give to parents or family members about their own everyday life and how they can practice mindfulness in their everyday life to help them avoid those feelings of shame or guilt or distress or anxiety. I usually tell people, it may sound strange at first, but it's not strange at all because once you start doing it, it feels very therapeutic, kind of like taking a bubble bath or relaxing somewhere like a beach or a stream. It just feels very good and therapeutic and it calms my anxiety down, helps me focus on the voice and you're just focusing on that voice guiding you through the different steps of focusing on your body or focusing on maybe some sounds or whatever they guide you through. And so anyway, the more I practice, the better I can handle the stress when it finally comes. Mm-hmm. And learning the many techniques help me use it. It can help me slow down and just savor those moments. It helps you savor moments like you see a sunset. And you're just like, hey, let me just enjoy this for a minute and just totally savor that moment and enjoy that moment right at that time because you can't get that back once that sunset's gone that sunset will never be there again yeah focus on each moment and so it helps me enjoy life more and not have regrets because Mm -hmm. you're savoring those moments with your family so that if something does happen you don't have regrets because you did savor those moments of when you had a good time together yeah yeah because none of us are guaranteed any amount of time So every time we get together, we should savor those moments and know that it's important to always say, I love you. It's important to let people know you're thinking about them. There will always be dust and work that has to be done, certain chores. But if somebody really needs you, dropping everything and going to be there for them, that's what's really important. I think that's part of the mindfulness, being aware of where you are in time and space right now, right this minute, and thinking about your priorities. What really is most important right now? I'm so glad we had this talk today, Jeannie. I think this is something that so many people don't know even exists. And I know that there are some mindfulness podcasts, and you said you did a mindfulness podcast. Is that something that would be available for people to listen to? Yes, I can put that link on your site. Yeah, we'll put the link in the show notes. So anybody who would like to listen to Jeannie with her podcast talking about mindfulness, there are other mindfulness podcasts out there as well. And I've seen a number of books on mindfulness. I've actually even been to a couple of conferences 
that have talked about that. And there have been sessions on mindfulness. I think it's a very popular concept right now and for good reason. I think that this is a coping skill that really probably everybody needs to have. Don't you think, Jeannie? Yes, it is. Thanks. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the program today and talking to us about your experiences with PTSD. Like I said, I think probably every parent who has had a child who has had multiple open heart surgeries and catheterizations and complications, I think all of us have a level of PTSD and CTSD, even though I didn't even know what CTSD was before I talked to you. (laughs) I think we do have that (laughs) continuous traumatic stress disorder. And it's nice to know that something as simple as mindfulness can help us to cope with life and to enjoy each and every day. And I so enjoyed the fact that I had a chance to meet and talk to you today, Jeannie. So thank you so much for coming on the program. Thank you, Anna. It was fun talking to you and thank you for inviting me on your show. I hope this helps at least one person who's listening. Me too. That's how I feel about every episode. If I help even just one person, it's worth all the effort that goes into making the program. So that does conclude this episode of Heart to Heart with Anna. Thanks for listening today. Please consider becoming a patron of our program by visiting www.patreon.com slash heart to heart. And remember, my friends, you are not alone. Thank you again for joining us this week. We hope you have become inspired and empowered to become an advocate for the congenital heart community. Heart to Heart with Anna with your host, Anna Jaworski, can be heard at any time wherever you get your podcasts. A new episode is released every Tuesday from noon Eastern Time.